Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts. After you find the four Gospels, you will find the book of Acts, which is the history book of the early church. And we're continuing to look at some of the women of the New Testament. This morning, we meet a lady by the name of Sapphira and also her husband, Ananias. But in order to understand what's happening in Acts chapter 5, I think we need to move back a few verses in Acts chapter 4 to see perhaps why Acts chapter 5 takes place. We kind of have a contrast here. At the end of Acts chapter 4, we have what's called a summary passage. It's actually the second summary passage in the book of Acts. The first one is at the end of chapter 2. And it does just that. It gives us a summary, an update. It tells us how things are going as the early church is growing and developing. So let's start in Acts 4, verse 32, before we meet Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them. You know, that's quite a statement right there. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone As he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now we see the contrast in chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look. 
The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you know, I think it's probably true that at least one time in our lives that we have probably lied to another person. I'd say that's probably true. At least one time. We've lied to another person. We've lied because we did something or we said something and we wanted to cover it up. We didn't want someone to know. We were embarrassed. We were ashamed. So we lied. Or we lied because we did not want to tell the truth and hurt someone's feelings. How do you like my new dress today? Oh, I love it. It is absolutely beautiful. You like my new haircut, my new hairstyle? Yes, sir, that is beautiful. We don't want to hurt someone's feelings. So we lie. There have been times, I would dare say, when we collectively have lied to ourselves. Because you see, Denial is a strong human mechanism, it's a strong human response. And sometimes we lie to ourselves. We just can't admit who we've become and what we're doing or what we've said. There's some addiction that's taken hold of us. Nicotine, alcohol, drugs, caffeine, food, a sexual addiction... We just can't admit it to ourselves. Some anger or bitterness or resentment that we harbor that has taken over our lives and we can't forgive someone. We just can't admit it. Or maybe we've taken on some commitment to do something and we know we're not giving it 100%, but we just can't admit it. So we lie to ourselves. Denial is a really strong human mechanism. And then sometimes we are ever so brave to lie to God about something we've said or something we've done or who we've become and we just pretend that he doesn't know. So we even attempt on occasion to lie to God. And the fact of the matter is on so many occasions we shatter the ninth commandment out of the ten that says, you shall not lie. I mean, we just blow it all to pieces. And that's what's happened in this text. Sapphira and her husband Ananiah has blown the ninth commandment to pieces. I mean, it's just shattered and laying there on the floor. They have lied to the leaders and to the community of the early church. They have lied to themselves and they have attempted to lie to God. And now they are seeing the fruit of their labor with their deaths, their untimely deaths. 
They have connived to pull off a fast one over the apostles by selling a piece of land, holding, holding back some of the proceeds for, for themselves, and pretending that they are being generous to the community. Here's the entire amount, they say, but secretly they've held some of it back. It's an alarming story because it's the first time in the book of Acts, in the history of this early church, it's the first time when someone has given a gift of money to the church and they've lied about it. It's been a greedy deception and an attempt to appear generous in a public fashion when the reality is they've been kind of stingy. Now we have to hand it to Luke, the writer of the book of Acts. We have to hand it to him because he tells it like it is. He, he doesn't try to erase any of the warts. He doesn't attempt to portray Christians as perfect people. He gives us two great contrasts here. One is Barnabas who sells a piece of land and brings the entire amount and lays it at the feet of the disciples and is honest and transparent and upfront about it. He's a great example of being a generous and willing and sacrificial giver. And then we've got Sapphira and her husband Ananias. While wearing the mantle of Christians turn out to be liars and cheaters and hypocrites. You know any of those kind of Christians out there that give Christianity a bad name? Can you think of someone right now? So while this couple thinks that they have, have covered up their deceitful deed to the early church community, they're obviously in denial about it themselves, their own sinful behavior. Ultimately, they can't keep the deed from God. Who knows and who reveals it to Peter? You know, is that old Eagles song? If some of you know the band, the Eagles, as that, as that old song goes, you can't hide those lying eyes. And especially when you're trying to deal with God, you can't hide those lying eyes. So you see, one fatal flaw of lies and deceit leads to a second fatal flaw. They don't use their stuff in the right way and they don't use it with the right heart and the right spirit. Now notice I use the word their stuff or I may use the, the phrase our stuff, but I use it carefully. Because I hope all of us understand here today that the material things that God gives us, the money, the possessions, the things, I hope we all understand that our stuff is really His stuff. That's important to understand. Now, you know, I have a lot of folks, Christian folks, who through the years have talked with me and we've had you know, pastoral conversations with each other. And I often hear Christian folks saying, you know, I want to stand on the Word of God. They'll come into my office and sit down with me and even bring a Bible and they'll put their hands on that Bible and they just kind of pat it while they're sitting on the couch talking to me. And they'll tell me about how important it is to stand on the Word of God. But you know, I've just noticed and observed through the years that Christians stand on the Word of God selectively until that word starts burning their feet. And then they step off and suddenly the word doesn't apply in this situation. 
So assuming that you're of the mind that you want to stand on the Word of God, assuming you want to have a biblical mindset, assuming you want to have a, a framework for your life that reflects the heart and the attitude and the spirit of Jesus, you know, that's what Christians we say we want to have is Jesus' heart. Assuming that's the case for you, I just want to remind you this morning, in case you've forgotten or in case you've never heard, that God's from his perspective, it is all his stuff. It's not our stuff, it's his. And assuming you want to have that Jesus mindset, you want to stand on the word and your feet haven't gotten burned yet, I just want to remind you that from a biblical perspective, the top 10% that the Bible calls the tithe, T-I-T-H-E, God says that's exclusively mine. Now, the other 90% is his too. But biblically speaking, he loans that out to us as his temporary custodians. And would you believe that he watches very carefully and very closely how we manage the remaining 90%? Why? Because ultimately it's his. I mean, the last time I checked... As I've heard Billy Graham say in years gone by, he's never seen a U-Haul hooked up to a hearse. You ever seen a U-Haul hooked up to a hearse? You can't take it with you. It's ultimately his. And God cares about how we use that 90% that's left over also. So you see, we may think that our stuff is our stuff and it's nobody else's business how I use my stuff and how I use my money. It's my decision. But would you believe, hey, we're going to stand on the word for a minute, try to have a Jesus mindset, a Jesus heart. Would you believe that in scripture there are over 2,350 verses on the use of possessions and things and money. Would you believe over 2,350 verses in comparison to about 400 verses on love? A couple hundred verses on prayer. And would you believe that of the 38 parables that Jesus told, 16 of them, almost half of them, deal with money and things and possessions and how we use them? but 2,350 verses on things and possessions. See, Jesus understood very well that where your treasure is, I mean, he said it, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So what would be the possibilities? What would be the possibilities for God's people if indeed we stopped lying to each other and we stopped lying to ourselves? And we stopped lying to God. And we began to understand that his stuff is really his stuff and it's not our stuff. How would that shift and change how we use his stuff on a temporary basis? Well, a couple of things I think would change. Number one, amounts and percentages would actually shift and change. You ever heard of the old rule that's called the 2080 rule? It says that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the life of a church or even in a volunteer organization. And it says that 20% of the people give 80% of the money. 
I'm, I'm sad to report to you that that rule is operative in most of God's churches, including this one. So I think some of what would shift if we started to see his stuff as his stuff and not our stuff is that those percentages would shift and change. More people would begin to see that they want to have an ownership in what God's doing in the world. Did you know that the larger your income, generally speaking, the greater the income, the less percentage of giving that people give versus folks who make a lesser amount of income? Did you know that? So I would see shifting people who have, who have been blessed with greater material and financial resources being more generous percentage-wise and not being outpaced by people who indeed make less money than they do. Did you know that the average Christian gives about 2.3% of his or her income? Did you know that? Now what that translates into on a practical basis is if you have a family income of $50,000 a year, what that translates into is $22 a week is the average gift for the work of God's kingdom in his churches. If you double that income to $100,000, then you give $44 a week. And that's about probably what a lot of us in this room spend on our cable, internet, and phone bills per week. If two people left this service today, two adults, and said, we're going out for Sunday lunch, my guess is you'd be hard-pressed with the meal and tax and tip for two people to buy it here in Greenville at the average restaurant. I think it would probably approach $40. So our internet and our cable and our phone bills on a weekly basis or our dining habits, one meal a week on Sunday after church, if that's what we do, has the same value for so many people as the work of God's kingdom. So I think some of that would just shift. It would shift. It would change. If people started seeing that my stuff is not really my stuff, it's his stuff, and he's inviting me to be involved with what he's doing in the world. Somebody has said, has done some research, and they figured out that if American Christians really started tithing, American Christians, not worldwide Christians, American Christians really took tithing seriously, that it would generate an extra $46 billion, not million, $46 billion a year. That blows my mind. By the way, did, did you know that Americans spend more money on their pets and on chewing gum than they do on their charitable giving? Would that surprise you? Chewing gum and their pets than charitable giving. If we had an extra $46 billion, this is what we could do with it. Five million microloans could be made to entrepreneurs in low-income countries helping to lift them out of poverty. 
We could feed, clothe, and provide shelter for over 6 million refugees in Africa and Asia who are fleeing wars and natural disasters. And we could sponsor not just the children at the North Carolina Baptist Children's Home, but 20 million needy children could be sponsored in our world through Christian aid organizations. $46 billion could do all of that. Now, I understand that not everybody was blessed like I was because I got raised by parents who taught me to be a gender giver. Not everybody comes from that background, and I understand that. I really do. I was raised by parents who taught me to be a gender giver. And so when I was in late in elementary school and in middle school and high school and was mowing yards, and raking leaves in yards to make some extra money. And then when I became a Wake County school bus driver and got a monthly check for over two years. And then when I bagged groceries at Winn-Dixie. Remember the old Winn-Dixie grocery stores from many moons ago? And then when I went to college and worked on the school newspaper and was an associate editor and got paid for doing that, it was a natural thing that if I mowed three yards, and yes, I mowed three yards for a total of $10 way back yonder, I got $10, I put a dollar in my offering plate at my church. Because that's what my parents taught me. But I understand how hard it is to shift habits. And the fact is, there's never a good time to shift a habit and to make a change, especially when it comes to giving. It's never an easy time. It's never a convenient time. It's never simple. Because you see, when you are in college, unless you got an extra job, you're in college. You're spending money, not receiving money in. And then you graduate from college and you get a job and it's your first job. And what are you doing? You're paying off those student loans and debt. And then perhaps you may get married, and so you would love to buy a house, and then that first child is born, and then the second child, or the third child, or whatever, and you had no idea how expensive those little rascals could be. The pampers, and the doctor's visits, and the clothes that they grow out of every three or four or five months, you had no idea how expensive it could be. And then after a while you start to think, you know, I really ought to be saving for that child's college education. And by the way, in a few years I'm going to be retiring. Maybe I better start putting some money into the 401k. And finally you get them graduated out of college and maybe you pay for some weddings. And then you start putting money into the retirement fund. And by that time, it's time for you to retire. And you're living on a fixed income. Trust me, folks. There's never, never, ever a good, easy, convenient time to decide I'm going to be a generous giver. Never. I'm not the oldest person in this room, but Lord knows now I've lived a good part of life. And I can tell you, I've done a lot of that stuff I've just described. There's never an easy time. Say, I'm going to be a generous giver. So what I've advocated for years, and this is where I think that God can bless you if you just give Him one little opening. What would it be like if you're only giving 1% of what God has blessed you with. And you said, you know, next year, God, if you continue to bless me and you continue to prosper me, God, I'm going to move it to 2%. 
And the next year you say, God, I'm going to move it to 3%. Or maybe God is really good and you move it to 5%. And over the course of time, you become that generous giver that God has designed you to be. Because listen, this is what I want you to know. God does not need your money. He's got all the money he needs. He can tap it at any moment. The fact is, he has placed a need in you to replicate and to look like his son who gave himself for you. You have a need to give. You just don't know it. That's the need. Not that God needs your money. It's that you have a need to look like his son Jesus. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave. And we forget that. You know, when you go to this last verse in this text, It says great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You know, if we had people dropping dead because in this service, because it was known that they were stingy givers, I believe there'd be great fear in this room too. The good thing is we got the uh, rescue uh, squad right across the street from us from Charles Street. We might revive a few folks who dropped down. But you know, I love Eugene Peterson in the message. I love his translation of that last verse. He translates, translates it, they knew God was not to be trifled with. That's how he translates it. And you know, if you give in token giving, or if you give in such a way that you're appearing to be generous, but you're lying to others or you're lying to yourself and you're trying to get by with, it, with God, you just need to know that you may fool others for a period of time and you may even be able to fool yourself. But please understand, you don't fool God for a moment. Because on this matter or any other matters, He's not to be trifled with. So don't doubt that He is watching very, very carefully and closely the spirit in which we give. And He's watching very closely how we use our stuff. Uh, I mean, His stuff. Let's pray together. God, we started this service this morning by hearing that hymn played, Count Your Many Blessings. And we do name them, and we do count them, and we do celebrate them, and we do give you thanks. Because, God, we live in a rich land, and we live in a land of plenty. Not everyone has been the recipient of all these blessings, but most of us in this room have. And we thank you for health. We thank you for family. We thank you that we have a warm and safe and positive place where children and young people and adults alike can come in and be cared for and be heard and told the message of Jesus. So God, make us thankful in how we use what you've loaned us. Make us thankful, God, and make us responsible. And keep on reminding us that you're not to be trifled with. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.